You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. well do you know yourself? What if you learned that you could replace me, myself, and I with my brain? You are your brain. But do you know your brain? Much of what that gray matter does is a mystery to science. It was the hidden workings of your subconscious that made most of your decisions today. And since brains influence other brains, that brilliant original idea you had probably didn't originate in your head. It's enough to give a guy an identity crisis. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, we dive into your hidden brain. Neuroscientist David Eagleman on who or what is really running the show and why free will may be a myth and neural engineer Michelle Maharbiz on the future of implanting small sensors that may tell us a lot about our brains and even help prevent disease. Are you ready for brain dust? When Plato wrote Know Thyself, he advocated for knowledge through science, although science back in ancient Greece, it was based on observation, but it mostly meant using geometry. At any rate, Plato would have appreciated this guy. I'm David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist at Stanford. Wait, are you certain about that? Yes. That is who I am. Okay, it's funny you should be certain, David, since you're the guy whose brain research has done so much to contribute to our identity crisis. We don't know who we are anymore. Dr. Eagleman says that you are your brain, which is straightforward enough. But he has also provided research that contributes to a long list of why your brain is unknowable, at least for now. Hidden motivations, an impenetrably dense forest of neurons, and the influence from other people's brains may make knowing thyself a real challenge. But you do have to start with your brain and not, say, your little finger. It turns out that from centuries of study, what we found out is that if you damage your pinky in a car accident or you damage a little bit of your liver or something like that, it doesn't change anything about who you are. But if you damage even a very tiny part of your brain that completely changes you, that changes your risk aversion or your decision-making or your capacity to see colors or name furry animals or a hundred other things that are seen in the clinic every single day. And that's how we know that the brain is the densest representation of who you are. Okay, so uh, 
changed my brain, you changed me. Exactly. How do we then understand what our brain is doing? I mean, you've called it a cantaloupe-sized hunk of alien computational material. Sounds like it ought to be of interest to me if it's really alien, <laughs> uh, you know, living inside our skulls. Um, you know, what tools do we have? We can make pictures of the brain, but you could make pictures of my pancreas. It wouldn't tell me much about my pancreas. Well, that's exactly right. Our, our best technology is what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. But the fact is it's a crude technology, and it gives us a time-delayed view of the activity in the brain, and it gives us something at an okay spatial resolution, but it's not telling us what we need at the level that we need it because you know the brain is made up of 100 billion neurons neurons are the specialized cell type of the brain and every neuron in your brain is as complicated as the city of San Francisco every single neuron in your brain has the entire human genome in it it's trafficking millions of proteins around and it's connected to other neurons it's connected to about 10,000 other neurons so what you have is about a thousand trillion connections in the brain and so the best technologies we have don't image things at the level that we that we really need. So so we're really just at the foot of the mountain in neuroscience trying to figure out what are these completely alien or foreign computations that are happening in there. Well, it, it sounds to me, I, mean, I hate to make an analogy to computers. You're, you're probably sick of hearing analogies of the brain to computers. Probably a hundred years ago, they'd make analogies to steam engines or something. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what they do. But, you know, looking at the computer, you see all these, you know, little black chips. So you see integrated circuits. But that doesn't really tell you too much about how that all works. I mean, it's not, it, the level is too gross. You really want to see what the neurons are doing, right? I mean, is there no way to do that? Essentially, there's no way to do it. We can implant electrodes into the brain, and that requires drilling a hole in somebody's head. This obviously only happens in cases where a neurosurgery is going on. You can lower an electrode into there and hear individual neurons popping off, pop, 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 pop. But that doesn't, of course, tell you about the network of activity, the other hundred billion neurons that are involved. It would be like if an alien lowered a probe and listened to one person and tried to figure out the economy of the planet. You just wouldn't get very far that way. All right. Well, what about controlling how our brains uh, are wired up? Because obviously how they're wired up is is who we are in some sense. Uh, Clearly, we have some influence on that, and we can decide to go to school or not go to school or change our friends. I, I don't know. Uh, that presumably changes who we are. That sounds like a fairly trivial statement, but it is true, is it not? Well, so this is the question about free will. Do you actually choose the friends you have and where you're going to live and so on? And it's not clear in neuroscience. I mean, this is an unknown question, but suffice to say, it's not clear that we have free will. In other words, if you came to the same fork in the road a thousand times, if you could rewind history and get you back to that point every time, would you take the same direction? And the answer may well be yes. Why? Because the brain is made up of this unbelievable number of neurons, as I mentioned, but all of these, to the best that we can tell, are following rules to their lowest potential energy. They're just, they're just physical devices following their rules. And if that's the case and there's nothing that we're overlooking, then it's a machine that plays out the same way. Now, the machine, of course, is influenced by every conversation that you have, everything you see. Every, so you're constantly changing as a result of that. But the question of whether you can make a choice that is not your neurons just sort of falling into that pattern and what seems like a choice to you is inevitable. That's the part that's not clear. I would say that what is absolutely clear, though, is if there is free will, 
if it exists at all, it's a bit player in the system. It is the smallest bit of what's going on because we already know that most of what you do and think and believe is generated by you know unconscious parts of your brain over which you have no access and no acquaintance. One thing I think about, but probably because I'm compelled to by my subconscious, is, you know, I, gosh, I wish I could add 10 IQ points to my brain, that kind of thing. Uh, what about brain training? There, there are facilities. I've been to one up in San Francisco that, uh, you know, will take a small check from you and, uh, and have you do a whole bunch of puzzles and say that your brain is now better, that you function better at understanding things, making decisions, whatever. Any, any truth to that? I mean, does it work? Yeah, Seth, I noticed that you sound about 10 IQ points smarter today than last week. <laughs> yeah, um, and I don't sound <laughs> smart today. So <laughs> so um, the, the general answer is this. Your brain is constantly rewiring and reconfiguring itself based on what you're doing. So if you challenge yourself with new things, that is helpful for the brain. There's an analogy to, to using muscles. The brain is not a muscle, but it's, it's analogous, which is that if you work out and you do a bunch of sit ups, your abs will be better. Your brain will be better for pushing you through those, those sorts of exercises, especially if they're novel. The, the question that exists in the neuroscience community is, is there transference of that knowledge? So in other words, if you go and you play a game that involves moving a frog across a road and so on, does that actually help you in other tasks of your life? And that's a debated issue right now. So you might be better at video games, that particular video game you've been playing for the last month, but maybe nothing else. That's exactly right. Then that, uh, that's an open question right now. All right. Now, but our brains uh, also reflect our culture. We've, we've discussed that a little bit, what the culture values, what it expects from us. So as you write, our brains are really an extension of the, of the brains around us. I mean, we're not, you know, no brain is an island. So... You know, are we kind of a hive mind without recognizing that we're a hive mind? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we are each one of us, we're, we're vessels of our own space and time. So that means that we absorb everything about our our culture around us. And, and the particular neighborhood you were born in and the year you were born and the culture you're embedded in, all of this stuff shapes who you are. And I was actually just thinking about this yesterday, this issue about what we call brainwashing versus on a large scale what we call culture. I realize there really is no line that we can draw where we say, oh, yeah, that's brainwashing. But your culture, that's fine. That's just you're absorbing your what everyone else around you is saying. One of the most interesting ideas in your books is the idea that what we do is driven by parts of the brain that, in a way, we have no access to. I mean, I suppose we have access to those parts of the brain, but they're doing sort of, you know, uh, hidden processing, if you will. Maybe you could give an example because I think you mentioned something about judges in Israel who were... <laughs> making judgments they only thought were actually based on law. Yeah, well, so this was a study that had to do with prisoners going up for parole and uh, who got parole and who didn't. And it turns out that this is highly correlated with the time of day and specifically whether the judge has had lunch or not had lunch. So, so if the prisoner's going up for parole at 11 a.m., they're much more likely to not get parole. Um, and if they go up just after lunch, they're much more likely to get parole. And this just demonstrates the way that the decisions we make are tied into all the other physiology of our bodies. But, you know, the general story is that almost everything that you're doing, you don't have conscious access to how you're doing it. So, uh, for example, I have a, a cup of water next to me and I, I, you know, when I lift that to my mouth and take a drink, that's actually a very complicated motor act. Um, that's underpinned by a lightning storm of brain activity, 
but I don't know how I'd do it. All I know is whether I spilled the water on myself or not. That's all I have access to. But everything in your life is like this. Driving a car, recognizing a friend's face, getting a joke, falling in love. All of these things are underpinned by huge lightning storms of brain activity, and we don't have any idea how it happens. Sounds like all the activities down in the basement where we don't see it. But well, <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's more than in the basement. It's that the conscious you, the part that flickers to life in the morning, is like a broom closet in the mansion of the brain. So more than the basement, it's everything is happening unconsciously. And, and you just have a little tiny layer that tells you, uh, you know, how you're living and what's going on. Well, could we get better access to that? I mean, is there some way we could open up that closet a little bit? Because particularly in the area of criminal behavior, I know that's an interest of yours. Uh, you know, if you can understand why people are doing something that is not valued by society, that maybe we could change that behavior if, you know, it's, it's down there where we could get to it. So let me say two things about that. A, I don't think we actually can get down there anymore into what our unconscious is doing. There are expert monks, meditators who can do things like change their blood flow so it's different in their left arm and their right arm. I think that's like a party trick where they're just dipping their toes in the surface of, of the unconscious. Now, this thing about neuroscience and the legal system, that's not so much about getting farther down to the unconscious. That's about understanding this fact that brains are really different from one another. So if you look around a room, you'll notice that there's a lot of variation in people's faces. There's that much variation in their brains, too. And what modern neuroscience has taught us is really an increasing understanding of the spectrum along lots of different axes that brains live on. So when it comes to the legal system, if you're a judge, you might have a number of people who present themselves in front of your bench during the day. And they've all committed exactly the same crime, but for totally different reasons. This guy over here has schizophrenia. This other guy is a, a sociopath. This guy over here is tweaked out on drugs. This guy over here grew up in a terrible neighborhood and environment and so on. And the thing is there are different things that can be done with the different people in front of you instead of imagining that incarceration is a one-size-fits-all solution, which is what we currently do and which is why our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. So with a forward-looking legal system instead of a backward-looking one, instead of saying just what did you do, saying what can we do from here, we can actually root people appropriately forward through the system. This doesn't let anybody off the hook, but what it does do is accomplish something more useful than mass incarceration. So, David, this sounds a little bit reductionist. I mean, you reduce an individual's behavior to the firing of some neurons. Uh, you've said this does not absolve the individual responsibility, but it sounds like uh, you're saying they're simply slaves to their unconscious. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's the case that people are really different across the spectrum, and our legal system has already recognized that. There's nothing novel about saying this person has a mental illness, and so we're going to treat them differently. This person has a drug addiction, so we're going to see if we can help them. The question of do they have a mental illness because of their free will, because they chose to have a mental illness, doesn't really make sense as a question. And so the best that we can do as a society is say, all right, how do we help them? How do we help them so that they can best function in society? They don't have delusions and hallucinations, but instead they can function in a manner that allows them to live their best life. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, and we'll hear more from him later in the show about brain technologies of the future. Well, the fundamental point here, in retrospect, is pretty obvious. I mean, that you are your brain. I have a liver, but I never think of myself as being my liver, even though it's doing something. 
mostly stuff I don't know about. <laughs> but it sounds like our brains are doing a lot of things we don't know about either. Yeah, yeah well, maybe my brain is really my liver. I, you know, that's right. And that's the disconcerting thing here because we think we're in charge of this whole operation called ourselves. Exactly. Well, it sounds as though it's hard to get to know the brain. And just when you thought listening in on those neurons was the answer, well, Dr. Eagleman provided a cautionary analogy that listening to one neuron well, it's akin to an alien lowering a probe to eavesdrop on a single person's conversation and then making conclusions about all of society. Lieutenant Zork, come in. Heidi ho Have you prepared a report on the goings-on of Earth? <laughs> That's affirmative, Daddy-o. It will be a relief when you update your Earthling babble from your last visit in 1947. Sure, I don't want to flip your wig, Commander. Oh, and sorry about losing control of the ship in New Mexico. I'm sure it was of little consequence. Proceed. We have successfully lowered a probe and recorded the conversation of one Earthling male, age 18 orbits. He was talking into an object in his hand. Excellent. This will give us a thorough and representative insight into circumstances on this world. Are Earthlings still preoccupied with the feline species? Well, let's see. Uh, no, no mention of hepcats or anything being the cat's meow, so it looks as if the human cultural obsession with this animal has passed. And what concerns them now? Basically, it's the future of the planet. Our subject was speaking to someone named Bruh, or was it Bro? Maybe both. Anyway, uh, let me see here. It seems Bruh had no chill and was throwing shade. Ah, so Earth's era of burning materials for energy has caught up with them at last. And they too are struggling with planetary warming as we once did. According to the probe's transcript, they recognize that the struggle is real, but a technology called Instagram may save them. How so? Well, according to my notes, the subject says that his Instagram was so cool, it broke the internet. Good galaxies, that is some powerful radiation control. And he was sorry, not sorry, to have it in his possession. Well, we can surmise that Earthlings don't need our help in saving their planet after all. Climate change solved, am I right, dude? <clears throat> I mean, am I correct, Commander? Coming up, what if we got better at listening to individual neurons and listened to more of them? Tiny sensors implanted in the brain and nervous system may tell us what up to now has been unknowable. It's brain dust on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Okay, so we are our brains. And as we've heard, this means we may not have free will and also may not even be autonomous individuals because our brains are influenced by other brains. So getting to know thyself may mean getting to know everybody. But there may be more data to be had from the source of our being, that is, all those billions of neurons exchanging information. In general, one can think of a neuron as a cell that has one long part of its body that extends out. And at the end of that, there's lots and lots of little, maybe call them fingers, that could then connect to other neurons. And what happens is that a neuron will take signals that are given to it from neurons upstream of it, if you will. And if the right signals are there, a neuron will then fire. What firing means is that ion channels begin to open and close and shuttle ions in and out of the cell. When the signal gets to the end, to these connections to the other neurons, there's what's called a synapse. The synapse will release chemicals that signal to the next neuron down the line, whether it should fire or not fire. And all that firing is enabled by those ion channels, the places where the neuron pumps charged molecules, you know, ions, in and out, so that the brain cells are always loaded and ready to fire. Dr. Maharbiz and his team at the University of California, Berkeley, have designed small implantable sensors to measure electrical signals in the brain and the peripheral nervous system. The tiny sensors are called neural dust or brain dust. Okay, first question, how do you get the sensors into the body? Do you have to open up the brain? For implants that are destined for the brain, and that's work that's going on right now in the lab, there's a number of approaches. Very naively, yes, you would have to make small holes in the skull and put them into the cortex, much as that is done today for classes of implants that address the cortex. In the rest of the body, in the nerves throughout your body, the peripheral nervous system, it would require uh, small incisions and sort of, you know, very targeted microsurgery to put the implant near the nerve or, or muscle that it would be acting on. Do you have any neural dust implanted in you at this moment? (laughs) No, that would be extremely illegal. The long road towards uh, human approval is uh, only just beginning. Now, it looks like you have a bit of neural dust here. What is a single dust part? What would you call it, a single one? Uh, I call them neural dust moats. Yeah, I like the word moat. Okay, so this this is a single moat. Yeah. This little thing right here is a single dust mode, and it has these four very thin tails. That's mostly for manipulation, so we can handle them as we're putting them in. So those are like the wires, and the mode itself is about the size of a grain of sand? That's about right. I mean, the, the ones that were recently published in the journal Neuron are, are maybe, uh, I don't know, half the size of a grain of rice, maybe a little thinner than that. A current dust mode is, is many times larger than a single neuron. The, the idea behind the ones that were just made was in fact to have them be about the size of an entire nerve fiber in the periphery. And so sometimes people get nerve and neuron confused. You know, a nerve, when we say nerve, we usually mean the bundles of axons of neural processes, sort of the cabling 
that runs out through your body to different organs and muscles and so on. The moat is composed of a piezoelectric crystal, which is this little cubey thing you see at the end. So it looks like a cube. That I can see at the end. I can hardly even see the moat itself, but okay, go on. So one of the advantages of being extremely myopic is I can see these things. <laughs> so so there's a little a cube uh, that's a piezoelectric crystal, and then next to it is a, n- a tiny, almost invisible little gray dot, and that is a chip that has a circuit on it. And then all the orange stuff is the polymer that sort of holds everything together, including and you probably won't be able to see this, but on the back side, there's two little dots of gold, and those are, in fact, the recording electrodes that you use to record the, the neural activity. They're just on the back there. It is so small. If this were on the table just by itself, without the wire sticking out of it, you would just brush it up into the dustbin. Hence the name. That's the goal. I mean, the goal is to make these even smaller, in fact. Now, that moat, does it attach to a single neuron, or what is it attached to? Well, it depends. So in the experiments that we did with peripheral nerves, we would attach it to a nerve, the outside of the nerve. So the the membrane that surrounds a nerve uh, is called the epineurium, and so we would attach it to there. For experiments where uh, you're trying to record from the central nervous system, and these are just beginning, right, to be clear, what you do is you, in fact, push the implant very close to the cortical surface, or you push it into the cortex. And so that what you're doing there is sort of coming down into the tissue and getting stuck in the fibrous material that is the cortex. And you just made the distinction between nerve and neuron, and I went ahead and asked whether or not that little moat goes around a neuron, but indeed it does not. It goes right. around a nerve. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I guess I have a lot of neuron asking you that question. <laughs> okay, you got me. All right, so you have these uh, these moats. The neural dust is is in your brain. Can you feel it? Would you be able to feel it? It seems like it might tickle or itch or something. Um, So I would doubt that you'd be able to feel this when implanted in your brain. Having said that, you know, this is the very beginning of the road for these things. None of these systems are in people. It's not approved. So we're, we're still many years away from being able to implant this into people. We're going to hear more about how the sensors work. But what's fascinating is how we communicate with them. I mean, you could just have wires connecting the sensors to the measuring equipment on your lab bench, but then the subject might look like a human porcupine. And besides, the body doesn't like having a bunch of wires in it. So the researchers use ultrasound to communicate with the implants. No wires. Ultrasound is just sound at frequencies higher than we can hear, unless you're a dog. Ultrasound is not readily absorbed by the body, which is why it's so useful for medical imaging. Ultrasound interacts with a piezoelectric crystal on the brain dust moat. Now, piezoelectrics are crystals that vibrate at a specific frequency when you put a bit of voltage on them. They're the timekeeping component in your quartz watch, for example. Piezoelectric crystals convert mechanical energy into electricity or vice versa, allowing the neuroscientist to communicate with the brain dust using ultrasound. For example, when a neuron fires near a moat, The small electric burst causes the piezoelectric crystal to change its vibration frequency. The ultrasound then bounces off the crystal. You can register that change in frequency and know that the neuron has fired. By plotting those reflections over time, Dr. Maharbiz can reconstruct what the neuron is doing or what many neurons are doing. The work that we've currently published is not in the brain at all. It's in the peripheral nervous system. And there what we're interested in is looking at recording the peripheral nerves in your body through your limbs, for example, your torso. And there's quite a lot of uh, clinical indications that could be addressed if one could reliably over many, many years just continuously read out what certain neurons are doing 
say, on your bladder or your GI tract or your leg and so on. And that also couples very strongly to the needs of people that would benefit from motor prostheses. So a robot arm, for example, or an exoskeleton. If the language of the brain is chemicals and electrical signals, and you are picking that up, you have to translate that. And what is the brain telling you? What are those signals telling you? Is it telling you, if not how that, what that person is thinking, how their body is moving, how healthy they are? I mean, what, what kind of information is encoded in, that, in those electrical signals? That's a great question. So in the peripheral nervous system, which is basically all of the nerves that are spread throughout your body, right, not your brain, so the nerves at the tips of your fingers and the nerves that work their way through your organs, there what we're interested in is in understanding how nerves signal motions that you're doing, how they affect organ function. We know or are beginning to understand, for example, the work of Kevin Tracy in the Feinstein Institute who's shown a link between peripheral nerves and the immune system, which is extremely exciting. So you can imagine now organs that are not working properly because of age or disease, limbs that are not working properly. If we knew and had a technology that allowed us to block certain signals and stimulate the nerves when we wanted to, right, and for, to do that we need to also record so we know what's going on, we would have a tremendous impact on many, many clinical indications. Um, you can imagine systems that would stimulate nerves at just the right time uh, to recover function that's been lost over time or, or with disease. So that's one very big area right now that many people are pursuing. And the idea is that you're controlling these functions of the body through the brain, not through the, the limbs or the organs themselves. So you don't go to the liver to try to control the liver or to the arm, the muscles in the arm. You're going to the brain. You might want to go to the brain. So there's two approaches. One is to go to, say, for example, the cortex with a lot of higher level function is occurring. The other is to go to the nerves that are out in your body in the periphery that are maybe not necessarily very close to the organ, and, or in some cases they are close to the organ, but those are the nerves that are controlling certain aspects of the organ function. And so that's really what I was talking about, that you could go to those nerves. Those nerves are in your torso or in your limbs. There's no skull there. There's no bone. So they tend to be much easier to access. They're very robust microsurgical techniques that we have now for reconstruction. And so one can imagine placing these little tiny moats along these nerves and both recording signals from them and stimulating them back really to address some of these disabilities. Something that's more speculative, perhaps. Um, could you use neural dust to regulate other kinds of biological functions, like appetite, for example, but maybe other biological uh, functions, since the brain is the pen station of all of this activity? No, that's a great question, but I'm going to answer it by going in a slightly different direction. It's a, something we're very interested in, in the two groups that are working on this. So you can use the same exact technique I described, but instead of using a circuit that looks for neural electrical activity, you could uh, marry it to a circuit that, for example, measures oxygen or measures pH or measures pressure or measures stress, measures certain chemicals, look for particular chemicals there or not there. There's a wealth of sensors that we could build that would fit into this little tiny platform and be addressable this way. And so it opens up this world where perhaps I can take a tiny implant that you wouldn't even notice is there and park it next to your liver for the rest of your life. And it will just report back on the certain states of your liver. Um, how about your GI tract? It's letting you know whether what you ate this morning is, uh, you know. And so some of it can be uh, fun and silly, but I, I think that there's a, there's a depth uh, to the type of information we might be able to get out of the body that actually is kind of astounding if you think about what's possible. Imagine being able to track cancer. Imagine if I could resect a tumor bed, in other words, remove a tumor, 
and leave behind two or three tiny moats that could act as sentinels for the next six months and uh, warn a physician as to whether any malignant cells have returned when there's very few of them, right? When just 100 or 1,000 cells have begun to return. This is an idea that we're pursuing with Mikhail Anwar, who's an oncologist um, and actually also an electrical engineer at UCSF and at Berkeley. Now, you talked about the durability of these sensors, and at some point they give way. What happens to them? They're still attached to the neurons in your brain? Do they fall off? If so, where do they go? Well, so it depends on where you put them and how they fall apart. So current sensors, when you put them into the cortex, into the brain, they're not really attached. You're just sort of pushing them in to the cortical matter, and they're very, very small. And so that's how it's done today. They look like needles, basically. And the reality is that when those things begin to fail, usually the standard thing to do, and I have to preface this by saying that there aren't many, very many, you know, humans that, of course, have undergone this. Um, there's some pioneering studies in the BrainGate trials that did this. But you always have to have what's called an explant strategy, which means that you must be able to remove this and pull these out. So there are no free-floating sensors that have been put, to my knowledge, into humans. Um, but, if, but if it needs to be removed from the brain, do you have to open up the brain? Well, so again, you know, I'm being very careful about how I describe this because this these are not studies I have done. You know, yes, when you put neural recording or stimulation probes or any, any probes of any kind really into the brain, you have to have a method to take them out. And so uh, that would involve usually having to open it up again and uh, open the skull up again and take it out. Now, in the periphery, that's easier, of course, because there's no skull. So you still have to have a strategy by which you would have to re- remove them if you had to do that. Now, if two people were standing side by side and they each had neural dust in their brains, I think you know where I'm going with this, would there be interference between the the signals or could one neural dust grouping talk to the other neural dust grouping? I'm not sure how to (laughs) phrase that. No, not in any uh, way. I mean, of course, with any interface, you know, if I'm recording with anything from some nervous system and and I'm recording or stimulating another nervous system and I have, say, a radio link or it's going through cables or something, you could do interesting things and it's fascinating. But from a purely neural dust perspective, there's really nothing like that because the ultrasound signals are completely limited to the brain tissue. The air is such a great reflector that it's really not traveling through the air or there's no, there's just absolutely none of that possible, really. Well, I understand that there's even smaller neural dust. By the way, who came up with the term neural dust? And do you prefer brain dust to neural dust? Right. I mean, it's a great name. Do you, do you take credit for that? Uh, I take credit for that along with Jose Carmena, but I, I do. And part of the way that name came about is that I'm friends with Professor Christopher Piester, who 20 years ago invented smart dust, which are these distributed millimeter scale sensors. And I'm, I'm good friends with them. And so I figured this was a good way to get back at him and try to rob him of some of his glory. Okay, so I understand that this neural dust can get even smaller, and I'm wondering how much smaller and what the outer limit is, or rather the the inner limit is. Could you have a, a moat that's the size of a neuron itself? Great question. So our very first paper was uh, just looking at the physics and math of that question. The answer is that, at least at a very basic level, if you make them smaller than about 100 microns, you know, about the diameter of a hair maybe, you start to run into problems with how much power you can get to them because they become too small and they just don't take up enough power to do the recording. 
But we're looking at ways of circumventing that limit. But I would certainly say that you know it's always going to be about that order. We you know we certainly have not built them full systems at that scale yet. So that's that's still a few years out. But I would say it's about that. And so yes, I think the dream is to be able to build them where they are getting down to close to that scale, the size of you know one fat mammalian cell, if you will. I certainly don't think this will work at the nanoscale as it as it currently exists. Did you say fat mammalian cell? Yes, I did. Sort of. A, I was thinking of a nice, round, chunky mammalian cell that you see under the microscope. Certainly not a thin neuron with a very small axon. <laughs> well, finally, Michelle, when you talk about the amount of information that you're able to collect from the brain, and if you were able to put sensors elsewhere in the body, so all of this information would be coming out. In your field, do the scientists ever talk about such a thing as too much information? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's something that most areas of science that are inundated with data these days, which is many, are coming to terms with. What do you do with all that data? First of all, there's a very pragmatic issue of how do you handle it? How do you store it? How do you analyze it? What algorithms do you use? What's the sort of science, right? What is the data science? But, you know, at another level, I think, how do you make sense of it? And then how do you even present this um, in a clinical setting to a patient? There are debates going back and forth about this right now. I mean, do you give the patient every last bit of data and let the patient wade through it? Or is it curated somehow? Or is it informed by a clinician? You'd hope so. So these are somewhat tricky matters, certainly in the clinical domain. And again, I'm not a clinician, but in the clinical domain, I see colleagues uh, certainly uh, grappling with this issue of how do you do that. I think in the technological domain, it's mostly at the moment a matter of figuring out the infrastructure for how you do it and the data science, really, of, of how you parse through it and how you make sense of all of that data in an algorithmic way. Michelle Maharbis is an electrical engineer at the University of California, Berkeley. Surely a big step here is having some way to measure very, very tiny things inside the body without killing the patient or without you know, invasive surgery or anything like that, really. Yes, I think one of the goals here is not to kill the patient. Imagine all the information that we could collect, though, on the body, on your body, and anyone's body, and their brain, and what's going on with these tiny sensors. And as he said, they're going to get even smaller. I think eventually they may adopt a different technology where you have some sort of transceiver, you know, that uh, you carry in your pocket with Bluetooth or something. And so you're monitoring a lot of your body, and that's all being sent to, you know, your physician's office or somewhere. Well, what if that information also gets sent to your insurance agent? Yeah, well, that's the big problem. And then they start saying, you know, Seth, we find that you're thinking about donuts a lot. Your blood sugar registers <laughs> that you've been eating donuts a lot. And so your insurance premiums are going up a lot. Listen, if I'm thinking a lot about donuts, it's probably because I'm not eating them a lot. Next, could our identities be reduced to the sum of all those neural firings? David Eagleman on the future of uploading your brain into a computer. It's Brain Dust on Big Picture Science. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. 
Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. There's a lot of information lacing your brain in the form of chemical and electrical signals. Billions of neurons are doing that signaling, an impenetrable web, except, as we've heard, it may not be impenetrable for much longer. Using sensors or other technology, we may be able to decode those brain cell messages. Now, Michelle Maharbiz will tell us that doesn't mean we're on the verge of reading minds. None of this is going to record anyone's thoughts. And the first reason is, the simple reason, is that we are not putting in billions of these things into the brain. We're putting dozens of them, you know, eventually with the aim of using them to drive prosthetics. But at a more philosophical level, I don't think we have any notion of how thoughts are encoded. And so certainly I don't think we would be able to in any way <laughs> back out anyone's thoughts with this kind of implant. But we don't have to read minds to make extraordinary advances in our understanding of the brain. And if we eventually figure out what's going on, we might be able to replicate those goings on in a computer. If we did that, if we built a simulated you, well, we might not need you in your biological form. To know thyself becomes just a matter of printing out some ones and zeros. It's a very long printout, but still. Now, we heard earlier from neuroscientist David Eagleman about the many ways the brain is hidden from us. Now he addresses where future technologies that may shed light on the brain could take us, beginning with that brain dust. So this is a great interest of mine, is the future of neurotech. And I think neural dust is one of the best candidates that we have. The idea is that you have a bunch of very tiny little devices that get put in the bloodstream and they will eventually position themselves over the surface of the brain. What this gives us is better read and write capabilities for the brain. So right now, our capacity to read brain activity is extremely crude. We can do things on the outside like electroencephalography, EEG, or we can peer and on invasively into the inside of the brain with things like fMRI. But these technologies are very crude. So what we really want to get to is where we can measure hundreds of thousands or millions of neurons all at the same time and see what's going on. And neural dust, as an example, will, will be able to get us there, should be able to. So this is one of the, the paths forward in this. But is it just a passive technology where it allows you to understand more about the brain? It isn't active in the sense that you can send the neural dust a you know, some sort of a data stream and say, do this and get this person to behave this way. To my knowledge, either the current version or the next version of neural dust will be able to send a little zap also. So you can not only read from it, but you can send signals to the brain that way. And I think that's the inevitable future is being able to read and write to the brain with high resolution. And this may be 10 years off, it may be 50 years off, but that's where we're heading. Well, 
how you've written about many other technological applications and that we're apparently moving to customize our neurobiology. So when you say that we will have more in common with our Stone Age ancestors than our near future descendants, I mean, what, what do you mean by that? I just, I mean, what it means to be a human is going to change dramatically and quite rapidly. So it may be that the kind of humans that you and I are right now ends up being something that our great-grandchildren don't really understand. They, I mean, look, the, 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 for example, in our back pockets, we all have access to the entire knowledge base of human kind. And that makes us really different than a generation ago. And I think once we start reading and writing to the neurobiology, um, that's going to make us really, really different in a way that's unrecognizable. What, what, what does it feel like to be a member of the last generation of Homo sapiens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't have you worried. Well, no, I, I think it's inevitable that this is the direction the species is going. And a lot of people are wondering about AI and what's going to happen there. And it may be that in retrospect, our purpose on the planet here was to ignite this next spark of electronic beings that take over the galaxy. And our evolutionary story ends soonish. And it's this next generation of machines that really takes over the next step. It's like telling the trilobites, you know, you're just a stepping stone to Homo sapiens. That's right. I don't know how I'd make them feel, but you probably <laughs> couldn't tell that. Well, you asked the question, uh, what if biological neurons then aren't key to who we are, but it's the information flow. It's the, you know, the switching. It's all the circuitry, if you will. If that's the case, we're going to fundamentally change that. I mean, right? Yeah. So this is known as the computational hypothesis, which is, okay, we're built out of a lot of cells doing a lot of computation between each other. But what if you could reproduce those algorithms on a different substrate, like uh, beer cans and tennis balls. Would it still be you if I built this enormous beer can tennis ball machine that does exactly what your neurons are doing? And I said, hey, Seth, how are you feeling there? And you said, oh, a little cold, but otherwise doing fine and so on. The question is, would that be you? And as far as we can tell right now, it would be because you emerge from the computations that your brain is doing. Okay, so we could run ourselves as a simulation. Exactly. So that means we could download ourselves, and in theory, we could you know, launch ourselves off to the next star. The idea would be we hit pause on the Seth simulation, and then when you reach Alpha Centauri, we turn it on again, and as far as you would perceive, you were here, and then you're there. It's like an instant transport. Yeah. Well, I like the idea of being instant. Otherwise, it's going to get very tedious eating all those peanuts for four and a half light years. So it's the computation, not the computer, it sounds like. So, David, here's the big question of the 21st century, in my opinion, maybe in yours too. Uh, can we eventually build machines? I mean, just let's short circuit all that soft, squishy protoplasm. Just get rid of that and uh, just, you know, obviate the brain altogether. Or is there something semi-miraculous about what's going on between our ears, uh, as, as some people maintain, that you can never actually simulate you know, what humans can do cognitively? I think this is pure speculation right now. When people say that there's something else that's special about humans, we just don't know. We don't have enough data to know. All of the evidence points us in the direction, I think, that we should be able to replicate this. And, and as I said, the reason is that, you know, it's physical stuff that we're made out of. It's a lot of it. It's an extremely complicated configurations. We haven't even scratched the surface of the algorithms that are being implemented there. 
But what we're moving towards is being able to eventually, you know, scan the entire human brain, replicate the whole thing in a computer. You know, it's a long way off. It's maybe a few decades off, but at that's, that, that's not so long. Yeah, it's not so long. And and at that point, we will be able to answer definitively: Is this everything? I mean, it's you know, it's the same question about your computer. If you replicated all the circuitry and so on in a second computer. Would there be something special about your computer that's not capturable? And the answer is no. So we'll, we'll see how that turns out. Well, all I can say is that if we can do that, if we could uh, replicate the behavior of a human brain in a machine, then we could you know, have the synthetic intelligence design its own successor, which would design its successor and so forth. Unlike for Darwinian evolution, this intelligence would get uh, well, it would improve incredibly quickly. That might put you out of a job, but on the other hand, that would put all of us out of a job, wouldn't it? Well, thank goodness we'd be out of a job. We'd get to see the the great scientific hypotheses get hypothesized and then proven all in you know five seconds, and we'd sort of know the answer to what's going on, and then we could just relax and do whatever we're doing, you know, mountain bike or garden or whatever one likes to do. <laughs> well, that's certainly a rosy future. David Eagleman, thank you so very much great. for speaking thank with us. Thank you, Seth. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, and he is the author of The Brain, The Story of You. Well, The Story of You, I mean, that could have been the title of the show, really, because we're talking about what we are, our brain. And one of the more astounding things, even though we've, we've known about it a little while, but that so much of our brain activity is below our level of consciousness. And everything that you said now, what I'm saying right now... Uh, who knows what is really generating that? I mean, as, according to David Eagleman, it could be other people. It could be the subconscious. We don't really know what's driving our thoughts and our actions. Yeah. I thought that the example of the judges who, of course, had different opinions in the morning and the afternoon, depending whether it was before or after lunch, that that's a little bit scary, and obviously in the legal field. But, I mean, just in general, my daily life, thinking that while I'm trying to be a rational kid— I'm not, you know. Okay, so we have this idea that the brain is hidden from us. However, it's still early days in brain research, and we've heard about the suite of new technologies that are coming that may help us understand what actually is going on. Dr. Mahabas' brain dust may tell us about what's going on in the brain and, and the central nervous system, but also the ability to perhaps one day hook the brain up directly to prosthetics. He didn't expand on that, but that is one of the ideas he mentioned, so that you'd be able to control prosthetic arms or legs with your mind. Yeah. It, you know, it's a very controversial thing. We understand how our kidneys work more or less, how our liver works, all the other organs of our body. We, we kind of understand it so we can simulate them with mechanics or electronics or in a computer. But our brain, that's the one organ that we haven't quite figured out. And there are plenty of people who will opine that you're never going to really figure it out. You're never going to be able to say, no, 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 uh, whatever the brain can do, including writing great poetry or whatever, is something we could simulate in a computer. Well, David Eagleman would disagree that we'd never be able to do that. And I thought some of his predictions of one day uploading ourselves into a computer. And then that question, is that you? It's hard to believe that would be you, Yeah, a bunch of ones and zeros. Yeah, well, yeah, I, but I think I would insist on an uninterruptible power supply so that I don't, you know, evaporate from the planet in a hard disk failure. That, right, so the generator goes down and poof, there goes Seth. Yeah, yeah, along with who knows how many others. That's right. That's, that's not a good thing. I want backup. I know. It's good to have the physical body for that reason. Well, that's right. And a lot of people do point out that without the physical body, you know, maybe the brain isn't so good at a lot of things because you rely on the physical body for a lot of input to the brain. The brain's taking care of your physical body, but in some sense, the physical body, by supplying all these sensors, your fingers, your, you know, everything, 
uh, that uh, are, are necessary for your brain to do what your brain does. Computers can't eat donuts. Yeah, no. As an example of something that computers can't do, even if they have your brain no. in them. That's right. I'm saying hold on to the physical self for a while, just, a little bit while longer. Just for the sake of the donuts? Thanks to the Brainy Duo who help us produce this show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Also thanks to Vocal Appearance by Leo Taranta Slack. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life including scanning the skies with our Allen Telescope Array. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the Big Picture Science episode, Brain Dust. If you'd like to hear more episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you like to think you're in control of your actions and want to buck the trend, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. And to reach us directly with your comments, record your neurons activity, throw in some faint praise, and email the file to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Hope that's not a long list of ones and zeros. Hey, how's it going, bro? Don't be mad at her for that. You have no chill. I'm just saying. She was trying to help out. Why are you throwing shade? Seriously, bro. Did you see the photo I posted today? My Instagram is so cool, it broke the internet. <laughs> well, that's the way it goes. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, catch you later, dude. We definitely have to hang this weekend. Am I right? Peace. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.